Good evening, everybody. All right. Good to see everyone tonight. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 17? Children of Israel are on the move. They are in the wilderness, though. And we pick it up in chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. You know, leadership is not easy. If you doubt that, just look at what Moses put up with for 40 years. Sometimes from a distance it looks kind of glamorous, and there are many people that kind of covet the leadership position, often until they get it, then they realize it's not as glamorous as they thought, and in fact, in some ways, leadership turns you into a piñata, which is what it did for Moses. Now, of course, at this point, uh, they are still being led by the Shekinah glory, uh, the pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, as God was leading them through the desert toward Mount Sinai, where he would enter into a covenant with them. And along the way, the people got thirsty. Now, here's the thing. Getting thirsty in the desert is legitimate. All right? God understands that. But coming against and attacking God's character is not legitimate. It's always wrong. And even though the people directed their complaining at Moses, he knew better. He knew that they were really complaining against the Lord, and their anger was really directed at him. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, When we have a problem, it is much easier to blame someone than to think through the problem carefully and spiritually. In this situation, Israel could have thought, we are in a desert. It's not surprising there is not much water here. God led us here, so we need to look to him to meet this need. And as we've already said, guys, God was leading them in the wilderness in part to uh, grow their faith for when they finally entered into the promised land and they had to face literal giants. And, uh, you know, that's when their faith was really going to be tested. Right here, God is just simply asking them to trust him basically for food and water. All right. Now, of course, you got two to three million people in the wilderness. There's really nothing to eat. There's not a lot of water. So, yeah, it was a walk of faith. Was God going to be able to provide for them? Well, I think he was pretty faithful in doing it up to this point. Why would they think he wouldn't do it at, you know, again and then continue to provide their needs? I know they failed the test the first time when they got thirsty. And God had Moses, he led them to a, a body of water, but when they tasted the water, it was bitter. They couldn't drink it. And so God had Moses put a tree, dump a tree into the water, and the tree made the waters sweet, drinkable. And uh, now they're complaining again about water. I mean, when do you learn? Like, you know, How many times does God have to provide? 
before we really take it to heart and go, you know, he's provided for me all these other days, all these other times. Why would this time be any different, right? But here they are complaining and murmuring again, making foolish accusations against God and Moses. I mean, verse 3 is a doozy. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Now, they keep bringing Egypt up. And to me, that says that Egypt was still in their hearts. As we've already said, it took God one night to get them out of Egypt. It took him 40 years to get Egypt out of them. Just like with us. It took God a moment to get us out of the world, salvation. It often takes a lifetime to get the world out of us, sanctification. But verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. Now, Mount Sinai is also called Mount Horeb. But here they're not at Mount Sinai yet. Uh, the word Horeb could mean the, the vicinity of Sinai also. So they're working their way towards Mount Sinai. And they're at a particular rock in the area. And God says, you know, stand before the rock in Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Masa, which means testing, and Mirabah, which means contention or quarreling, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted or actually tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? I mean, can you believe this? Is the Lord among us? After all he's done to get them out of Egypt and you know, bring them this far, parted the Red Sea, uh, providing bread from heaven and so on, and they're still complaining and going, you know, well, can he come through with this test? I mean, this situation, testing him, is the Lord among us or not? So far we've seen them complain for water, then food, and now water again, both of which are staples, both of which are essentials for life. I mean, you know, God has promised to take care of are essentials. Last time we saw how that God provided, the people were complaining about food and so on, and God provided, started to provide bread from heaven, the manna. And we said last time as we studied John 6, it was symbolic of Jesus, who's the bread of life. And now we see God giving them water from the rock after Moses struck it or after it was smitten. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, that that rock was also symbolic of Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Everything is pointing to Jesus. The volume of the book, he said, is written of me. 1 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 1. Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, when Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10, when he calls this spiritual food and drink in verses 3 and 4, he's not saying that they were spiritual in the sense that they were non-physical. They were real bread and real water, of course, but that they were spiritual in the sense that they were supernaturally provided by God. That was the idea here. Also, when he says that this giant rock followed the children of Israel in the wilderness, we're not sure exactly what he's talking about. 
Is he speaking literally or figuratively? In other words, did the rock roll with them? And if so, rock and roll was a lot earlier than we thought. But did the rock roll with them as they moved about the desert and every time they needed water, it brought forth water? Or did the rock that Moses struck initially bring forth so much water that the streams followed them as they wandered through the wilderness? I'm not sure, but you can turn to Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, verses 15 to 17, we read, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. Quite a river. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Rivers or streams in the desert, right? But they sinned even more against them by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. So I'll let you wrestle with exactly what the psalmist is saying. I mean, did the rock follow them? Or did the rock bring forth so much water that it, you know, the streams followed them wherever they went? I kind of prefer the rock and roll theory, all right? Um, because we're going to see this in a moment. But uh, we do know this. God wanted to show them, and all of us actually, that if he could take care of 3 million people in the desert for 40 years, certainly it is nothing for him to take care of us no matter how desperate our circumstances are. Paul said, Romans, I think, 15, 4, these things were written for our learning that we might have hope, comfort. As we read how God took care of them and how he provided for them in ways that were really humanly impossible, but it was a miracle. I mean, certainly God can provide for us and God will provide for us, right? The spiritual application is that as God fed Israel with bread from heaven and water from the rock, so too he feeds us spiritually on Christ who's the Word of God, right? Jesus is called the Word. And so we feed on Christ. How? By feeding on the Word. The Word of God is the bread of life to our soul, living water to our soul. It refreshes, it nourishes, uh, it keeps our spiritual man healthy and so on. And uh, so we see a picture of how Christ is, is being presented here. Now, 40 years later, the people cried out to Moses again, as recorded in Numbers 20, uh, verses 1 to 13. It's interesting that the word rock there, God said to Moses, now the people are crying out, we're thirsty. You know, why have you led us out here to die in the wilderness? You know, in 40 years, nothing has changed. All right. And God said to Moses, Moses went in before the Lord. He's pretty exasperated by this time. I mean, he's had it. It's 40 years of this, right? So he's frustrated. And, uh, and God says, Moses, just go out and speak to the rock, and it will bring forth water. Now, here's the thing. The Hebrew word for rock in Numbers 20 is a different word than rock here in Exodus 17. When God told Moses to smite the rock in Exodus 17, uh, that was a different word for the word for rock when he said, just speak to it. The word in Numbers 20 is a rock that was lifted up, a rock that was lifted up. And God told Moses just to speak to it, it would bring forth water for the people. But Moses, in his anger, went out there and misrepresented God. God wasn't angry with the people, but Moses was. And so Moses, instead of just speaking to the rock, as God had said, was angry. And he said, you rebels, must we fetch water for you from this rock again? And he strikes the rock the second time. And that, well, that caused Moses to forfeit his, uh, God would not let him go into the promised land because he misrepresented God by the waters of 
Mirabah. And God told him, Moses, I wasn't upset with those people. You were. You misrepresented me. You made the people think I was angry with them when you were. But spiritually speaking, we know something. We know that the rock represents Jesus. And once the rock is smitten, it doesn't need to be struck again. Once Jesus was crucified, he doesn't need to be crucified anymore. All we need to do is come to him, and the living water is poured into our soul. We are saved. After that, after he, though, has been lifted up now, is with the Father, what do you say? If I go to my Father, I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit, right? And it's his people, you know, once we get dry and we're feeling spiritually uh, dry, we're kind of in a desert time, uh, you know, we don't need to be saved all over again. We just need to speak to Jesus now as he is high and lifted up and say, Lord, will you pour the, the refreshing water of your spirit upon me again? I need to be refreshed. I need to be revived, you know? We just need to speak to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will again pour a fresh outpouring of his spirit upon us. I love what uh, God said to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44, verses 3 and 4. He said, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. And I have to believe, guys, that the prophet Isaiah was looking forward to the ministry of Messiah, who when he came in John 7, you want to turn to John 7, I believe Jesus was fulfilling that very scripture in Isaiah 44 about how he was going to pour his spirit out on those who were thirsty. John chapter 7, verse 37, we read, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice what it says at the beginning of verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast. Now, that would be the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the seven feasts of Moses as recorded in Leviticus chapter 23. It was a, a seven-day feast, and it began on the 15th day of the seventh month, the month of Tishri, which corresponds to our late September, early October period of our calendar. But it was both an agricultural and a historical feast an agricultural feast, and that it celebrated the great fall harvest. That was the biggest harvest. This was an agrarian people. They lived an agrarian life. I mean, it was agriculture was everything, all right? And the Feast of Tabernacles, in part, celebrated the great fall harvest as God would give his people such an abundance of crops, okay? He would just really lavish upon them uh, so much in the way of uh, a great harvest. And that's why this feast was also called the Feast of Ingathering. Because they gathered in the harvest. A great time of celebration. But it was also an historical feast commemorating Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when they lived in tents. Now, uh, for this feast, God told the people, now in Jesus' day, of course, this is what they did. They were to move out of their houses for this seven-day period. And they were to move into these booths, these little handmade huts, okay, 
And they could be made from palm branches and other things that were woven together. You could lean them up against your house. Some of them, uh, some of them were freestanding. But here's what God said. You have to make the booth or the tabernacle with enough space between the walls and the ceiling so that when you lay down in it at night, you can look up and see the stars. Also, enough room in the thatching of the branches that the wind would pass through. And this would allow you to get a little taste, God, instead of what your forefathers endured for 40 years. Now, the kid, kids must have thought it was great fun. Move out of the house and camp outside for a week. Adults, I'm not so sure they, were, they took to it like that. Moving out of the comfort of your home to spend a week with the kids in this little tabernacle booth thing, all right? But God wanted them to remember. The 40 years their forefathers walked through the desert wasn't an easy existence, but how God was faithful in providing the bread from heaven and especially, guys, the water from the rock. Because in Jesus' day, his lifetime, the feast started in the early morning with the, with the morning sacrifice, at which time the high priest took a golden pitcher and led a procession of priests down to the pool of Siloam where they filled the pitcher up with water and then made their way back up to the temple mount. And while they were on the temple mount now, the uh, temple choir began to sing the Hillel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118, and uh, the priest would then make one procession around the altar of sacrifice before dumping the water from the pool of Siloam on the altar. It was a, a, a libation. It was a, a water offering, thanking God for all the years he provided water for their forefathers in the wilderness to quench uh, their thirst. And uh, this happened, guys, each day for the first six days of the feast. Remember, it was a seventh-day feast. What happened on the seventh day? Well, the seventh day was a special day. It was known as the Great Hosanna and climaxed the Feast of Tabernacles. Whereas in the first six days, the priest would make a procession down to the Pool of Siloam, dip the golden pitcher, come back up to the Temple Mount, walk around the altar once before pouring out the water on the altar. On the seventh day, the great day of the feast, they would march around the altar seven times before pouring the water out on the altar. Of course, the people were really riveted by this time. Seven times around the altar. Number seven is number of completeness. And here they were now completely focused on how God had provided water for their ancestors that quenched their thirst in the wilderness and kept them alive. And I'm, I'm convinced right at the very moment, the high priest was now pouring the water out after walking around the altar for the seventh time, that Jesus at that very moment, he jumped onto a rock or a table and he shouts in John 7 verses 37 and 8, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now you, can, you get goosebumps thinking about the impact it must have had. He said, and he who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Of course, this corresponds to something that he said to a woman who was drawing water uh, from a well in the uh, area of Sychar, which was Samaritan territory. And Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Galilee from Judea. And the quickest way to get there was just to go straight north, passing through Samaria to the Galilee. But the Jews hated the Samaritans because they were half-breeds, half Jew, half Gentile, and therefore were considered by the Jews as defiled. 
So even the dust of the land of Samaria was defiling. They didn't even want the dust on their shoes. So what they would do when they had to go north to Galilee from Judea, they would first go east, cross over the Jordan, and then make their way up north through Perea until they were adjacent to Galilee, and they would cross back over the Jordan River, and that's how they would do it. Well, Jesus, he, he, he broke all kinds of rules and things. So they were on their way to Galilee. He goes right up with his disciples into Samaria. I'm sure his disciples were shocked, but they dared not ask the Lord what he was doing. So he sends them away to get food or something. And in the meantime, he sits down by a well. It's about noon. He knows why he's there. From the foundation of the world, the Father has told him that he was going to be at that well at that day at that time because he had an appointment with a woman of Samaria. So here she comes. It's noon, like I said, which is an unusual time to draw water because it was the heat of the day. Women drew water from wells back then early in the morning or in the evening when the sun had kind of gone down. But she drew water at the hottest part of the day, signifying she was an outcast. Because it was a social thing. All the women would gather by the well to gather water, and they would talk and, and fellowship. She's by herself. We know why she was by herself, because she was a bit of a pariah to the women in town. She had been married and divorced five times. Who knows if she had taken some of those husbands from other gals. And now she was living with a guy she was not married to. So she was a social outcast, and here she comes, and Jesus asked her to give him a drink. She's shocked. She says, well, you're a Jew. You Jews have no dealings with us. Basically, you hate us. You want nothing to do with us. How is it that you asked me for a drink of water? And Jesus said, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you living water. And she said, well, sir, the well is deep, and you have nothing to draw with. How then will you give me that living water? And Jesus answered her in John 4, verse 13 and 14. Whoever drinks of this water from this well will thirst again. Physical water will only satisfy a physical thirst for so long before you need to take more water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him or her, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, going back to what Jesus said in John 7, after he spoke verses 37 and 38, then John adds his own commentary, because John's writing this about 60 years after the fact, and John says in verse 39, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He had not been lifted up. He had not been ascended back to his Father. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which would happen on Pentecost, hadn't happened yet. I just want you to notice this. After we drink from the rock who has been smitten, after we're saved, we become a kind of a rock. Didn't Jesus say this to Peter? You are Petros, and upon this Petra, I'm going to build my church. Petra means a large bedrock. Petros, Peter, means a chip off the bedrock. All right? Uh, Jesus is the rock. Through him, salvation is poured out. But once we receive him, we become little chips off the rock. Okay? And as such, we become a channel 
for the Holy Spirit who is in us to flow through to satisfy a lost and dying world around us. This world is, th they don't even realize why they're thirsty. In fact, in John 37, Jesus gives the gospel, I think, in about the most succinct way of any place in the New Testament. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's the gospel. He's the living water that we drink from to be saved. Once we're saved and the Holy Spirit has filled our hearts, then we become a channel through which the Holy Spirit wants to flow to others around us that they might be saved, that their thirst might be satisfied. You know, we were never intended by God to be reservoirs to contain the Holy Spirit. We were always intended by God as his people to be channels through which the Holy Spirit could flow. That's very important. Our responsibility, as Paul stated it in Ephesians 5.18, to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. If we're channels and not reservoirs, that means that you know we're not designed to hold the living water of God's Spirit. It's just supposed to flow through us, which means we have to be connected to the source of that flow all the time, which means we have to be in fellowship with the Lord. We have to stay close to Him. We have to make sure that we are connected every day by walking in the Spirit. And as we are connected to Him, it allows the power of His Spirit to flow through us to those around us. So we see so many pictures presented here of Jesus. But back in Exodus 17, in verse 8 we read, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Rephidim. Amalek, guys, or the Amalekites, were descendants of Esau. Esau is described in the Bible as a man of the field. If you know anything about uh, uh, expositional constancy, in the Bible, the field represents the world. So Esau was a worldly man, an unsaved man, who was an earth dweller, basically. Uh, Esau was never saved, unlike his brother Jacob, was not the most spiritual guy in the world, but he was a believer, okay? Jacob dwelt in tents, signifying a sojourner. Esau was the man of the field, signifying he felt very at home in the world. That's who he was, right? So the Amalekites, being descendants of Esau, were really uh, symbolic of, you know, uh, the worldly person, the unsaved person. And as such, they are symbolic of the flesh. Now, I want you to notice this. And again, whenever you read about the Amalekites in the scriptures, Think of the flesh, because that's the Holy Spirit is using them to kind of symbolize the flesh, that part of us that we inherited from Adam. Not the physical body, but the fallen nature, the flesh. Our spirit lives in a body of flesh, but in the Bible, especially in Romans 6, in fact, Romans 6, 7, and 8, when it talks about the flesh, it's talking about the fallen nature that we inherited from Adam. But the Amalekites were a symbol of the flesh. And I want you to notice this. Very important. They were the first enemy to attack God's people after Israel came out of... After Israel was redeemed out of Egypt, who was the first enemy that came against them? The Amalekites. Now I want you to notice this. Up until this point, the Lord had not called upon His people to fight at all. God delivered them out of Egypt all by Himself through His mighty power and the blood of the Lamb. God did that, okay? They had nothing to do with that. That was all work of God, just like our salvation. We have nothing to do with it. It's a total work of God. He did all the work. We just believe. We apply the blood of the Lamb to our hearts, 
and we are saved. But listen, once they had been redeemed and were being led by the Holy Spirit, and if you doubt it was the Spirit leading them in the wilderness, you can look up Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. It tells us very clearly the Holy Spirit was the one leading them in the wilderness. Once we're redeemed, and now we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit, that's when the Amalekites attacked Israel, and the warfare began. As soon as we come out of the world, as soon as we're redeemed, the first enemy, we, before anyone ridicules us, before the devil really attacks us, the flesh rises up against us. Because the flesh has been in control all of our lives. The flesh has been dominant. And as such, the flesh has never been opposed. Our flesh has never been said no to. We do pretty much, we did pretty much anything we wanted to do before we got saved, right? But once we get saved, or once we were redeemed, and we began to walk in the Spirit, following the Lord, well, that's when our flesh attacked us and the warfare began. The uh, spiritual principle the Holy Spirit is teaching us is the same, through this story in Exodus 17 is the same one Paul was wanting to communicate to us in Galatians 5. You can turn there. And guys, this is pretty basic. I mean, obviously, Christian life is it's all about warfare. Even as the children of Israel, after they were redeemed out of Egypt, the first group that attacked them were the Amalekites. That's when the warfare began. Same is true with us. And Paul tells us this in Galatians 5, verse 17. He said, For the flesh, and again, it's talking about our fallen, sinful fallen nature. For the flesh lusts, which means constantly fights against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Once you get saved, you're redeemed. Now, you know, you have a new nature, and uh, the old nature begins to fight with the new nature for dominance. Paul expanded on this idea in Romans 7, if you turn there. Again, Romans 6, 7, and 8, I think it was uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great pastor of the, uh, I think it was the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He said that when a Christian drops their Bible on a table, it should automatically just open to Romans 6, 7, 8, okay? He says that is where we all live. That's a passage we all must really understand. But in Romans 7, starting with verse 18, Paul said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, my fallen nature, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. So I want to do what's right. I want to obey God, but there's another part of me that doesn't want to do that and so verse 19 for the good that i will to do i do not do but the evil i will not to do that i practice now if i do what i will not to do it is no longer i who do it but sin that dwells in me for i find then a law that evil is present with me the one who who wills to do good so there's this other law there's a law of god in my heart now but there's this other law. He calls it the law of sin and death. And that is warring with my new man for dominance. And um, verse 21, again, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. 
But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, in my physical body, is the idea. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. He says, goes on in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, you have to understand, and let me just stop and say this, okay? I'm going to do this from memory because I didn't put it in my notes. When Paul talks about the Spirit, I think in the whole book of Romans, he only mentions the Spirit a couple times, you know, very little. But here in chapter 7, he's talking about this war. He's talking about the fact that I want to live for God. i got the law of God written in my heart now. I want to do what's right. I have a desire to do what's right. But there's something inside of me that still wants to disobey God. And I find this struggle going on, right? And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he gets into chapter 8. Now, chapter 7 is a chapter of defeat. It ends in a cry of defeat. Oh, wretched man that I am. Chapter 8, you turn the page, chapter 8, it's a whole new day. I am more than a conqueror through him who loved you. Wait a minute, you are a wretch in chapter 7. Why are you not a conqueror in chapter 8? Because if you read chapter 8, the word, the name of the Holy Spirit is mentioned 23 times. That's where the victory lies. Sure, I can in my flesh try to defeat the flesh. But you'll never defeat the flesh by using the flesh. New Year's resolutions are worthless. Because you're making promises in your flesh to conquer your flesh. And it's a self-defeating proposition. What you need to do is just die to self, fall on your face before God and say, Lord, I'm a wretch. I can't begin to live this life. And God says, that's right. It's a supernatural life. You've got to trust me. You've got to trust the Spirit of God inside of you to live that life through you. Again, guys, there is no fighting with the flesh before we get saved because we were dead in trespasses and sins. And as Spurgeon used to like to say, dead men don't struggle. So there was no struggle, there was no warfare. Before we got saved, we were dead in trespass, dead to God, all right? And we just floated downstream with the current of the world like a bunch of dead fish, as Paul described in Ephesians 2. But once we were redeemed, we received the new nature, the nature of God, A nature that desires to be led by the Holy Spirit. And guys, that's when the flesh attacks. And the flesh is always going to be the first enemy to attack because the flesh does not want us walking in the Spirit. Where was God taking them? Well, you had a sign to make a covenant. But ultimately, where were they headed? The promised land, right? Now, they didn't wind up going into the promised land for 40 years because they didn't really trust God. He was going to be able to give them victory. But once we get saved, the Lord begins to lead our lives, and he's leading us away from the world into our own spiritual promised land. What is that? It's a place of victory and blessing and fruitfulness. It's a walk of faith, though. I mean, God's spiritual promised land, as I've said before, is really walking in and um, appropriating all the promises he has given to us in his word. And that's why I like those little Bible promise books Because I tell people, that's your spiritual promise line right here. Because it's filled with the promises of God given to the redeemed. And you know what? Those things are not automatic. I mean, when God led his people into the promised land, they still had to fight the enemy. God said to Joshua, everywhere you lead the children of Israel, I have given it to them as a possession. But you're still going to have to go in and fight. And by faith, take 
the promises appropriate them to your life, like all of us. I mean, we think how great it would be to get saved and uh, immediately just inherit all the promises without even struggling. The problem would be we would not be very strong spiritually. If God were to give us all those things, see, warfare is good for us in a lot of ways. It brings discipline. It hones our faith. It produces within us perseverance. Warfare is good for us. God knows that. That's why he told his people, when I lead you into the promised land, I am not going to give you victory all at once. But little by little, as you walk with me and you grow stronger and stronger, you're going to have the victory more and more until you possess all the promised land. Same is true with us. But Satan working through our flesh, guys, does not want us walking in the Spirit. He may have lost us, of course. If we're saved, he's lost us. But he doesn't want us walking in the Spirit because then we're going to start taking territory away from him. And so he opposes us. He uses our flesh to oppose us from walking in the Spirit. And, and you know, just like the children of Israel, God did not want them to stay in the wilderness too long before entering into the Promised Land. Again, it was an 11-day journey from Kadesh Barnea to the Promised Land. An 11-day journey that wound up taking them 40 years. Why? Because of their unbelief and carnality. There are a lot of... In fact, we've said this before. For a large segment of those people that came out of Egypt, the desert was nothing but a coffin. Those who were 20 and above who came out of Egypt, those that refused to trust God to give them victory and lead them into the promised land, God says, well, you know what? Because you didn't trust me. Uh, you didn't trust that I could lead you into the promised land like I promised you, give you victory. Therefore, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until you die out. And your children, whom you said I will, I've led out of Egypt to kill, they're going to wind up entering to the promised land and inheriting what, I've, what I have promised. So for one group, the wilderness, the desert, was a death march a coffin. They were just marching around the wilderness until they died. For the other group, it was a crucible. It was a time of preparation where God was teaching them lessons in faith they would need once they entered the promised land. You know, it's, it's sad to me how many people get saved, Christians, who wander aimlessly all their Christian life and never really know victory, fruitfulness, the life of the Spirit. They're saved, but they never really enjoy their salvation. And the reason is because they're trying to live in two worlds at the same time. Part of them wants to live in the world of the unredeemed, and part of them wants to live in the world of God's people. You can't do both. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. So God was using this wilderness to test them, and Satan was opposing them. Satan did not want them to enter into the promised land. He doesn't want us to enter into the life of the Spirit. I mean, what are we to do, though? And the enemies are pretty powerful. You know, the flesh is very powerful. What are we to do? How are we to have victory in our walk against the flesh? Well, let's look at Exodus 17 a little more carefully and see if we can glean some insights from how God's people won victory over the Amalekites back then to use in our warfare against the flesh today. Again, verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill 
with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. Now Joshua's got uh, obviously uh, an army now uh, that have been raised up from the children of Israel, a bunch of young guys who now were the army. And Joshua took these young guys kind of into the valley where he was uh, physically doing battle with uh, the Amalekites. And Moses said, while you're doing that, I'm going to be up on top of the mountain with the rod of God in my hand. So verse 10, so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. And so he took a stone and put it under him and sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. The first thing we learn from Israel's victory over the Amalekites was, listen, it was determined by the uplifted hand of Moses. Verse 11. The uplifted hand of Moses was, guys, listen, emblematic of prayer. I'll just read these to you. Psalm 28 verse 2, the psalmist said, Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you, so he's praying, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, I desire therefore that men, men of God, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So when Moses was up on the mount, raising his hand toward God, with the rod of God in his hand, it was a symbol of prayer. A symbol of prayer. And guys, prayer is essential for victory. But it's not easy. In fact, prayer can be exhausting. It can be exhausting. But persevering prayer, listen to me, makes all the difference in the battles that we face with our flesh and also with the world and with the devil. When our arms are lifted up to God in prevailing, persevering prayer, we will gain the victory. If we grow weary and our hands drop, in other words, we stop praying, we will be defeated. And that is why Jesus admonished us in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, that God's people ought always to pray and not lose heart. Because some victories don't happen quick. Sometimes it takes a long time. And we tend to grow weary after a while. Oh, they're never going to get saved. Or this marriage is never going to be healed. Or something. And that's why Jesus said, look, you ought always to pray and not lose heart. Because you never know if after all these months or even years of prayer, the day is going to come when the answer will be there. And that's why Paul commanded us in Ephesians 6 verse 18, he said, pray what? Always always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance hang in there what the word means don't give up and supplication for all the saints god's people praying for one another constantly james reminds us in james 5:16 the earnest prayers of the righteous god's people well, they have great power and accomplish wonderful things. Great power and produce wonderful results. What is the rod 
of Moses and his, what, what does the rod represent? The rod in Moses' hands, hand, guys, symbolized the authority that God had given to him. God had raised up Moses as a leader and used the very rod that he walked with, a walking staff, really, uh, throughout the world as he was a shepherd for 40 years in the desert. God used that very thing to be a symbol of the authority that God had invested in him as a leader and deliverer. In fact, in Exodus 4, verse 17, we read, God speaking to Moses, and you shall take the rod in your hand uh, with which you shall perform my miracles. So the rod symbolized God's authority, God's miracle working power that was upon Moses' life as a leader. Now, Jesus also gave us authority as his people to work miracles and to have victory over the devil. You don't have to turn there, but Luke Chapter 10, verse 19, remember what he said to his disciples. He said, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus Christ has given us authority as his people. We have been anointed to go out with the gospel, and as we go out with the gospel, he has promised to be with us, and uh, the devil will be defeated. The gospel is powerful. It becomes the thing in our hands, where that is what the, where the power is, but the power of the Spirit inside His Word and working through His Word. But listen, Moses was just a man, just a person like the rest of us, and after a while his arm got tired, you know. He's holding his arm up, you know, he's not a young guy anymore, holding his arm up with the rod of God. Well, he got, his arm got tired, and it began to drop. And as he dropped his arm, the Amalekites began to prevail. Every time he lifted his arm, Joshua and the children of Israel prevailed. So what did Aaron and Hur do? They stuck a rock under Moses, had him sit down, and then they went on either side of him, and they held up his arm, both of them, and they held up his arm until Joshua and the children of Israel had complete victory over the Amalekites. What is the Lord telling us? He is saying, look, it's important for us to pray with others. Sure, we have our own private prayer time. But it's good to have some prayer partners, isn't it? Because they will help us. They will keep us accountable. We need each other's strength, don't we? Sometimes we're praying for something, and again, it's not happening. And months, maybe a person's praying for a, a spouse to get saved and a marriage to be healed. Maybe they're praying for a long time for a physical healing or something else that has been burdening them. And they are praying and praying, but eventually they grow weary and discouraged in their prayers. Their arm begins to drop. They, they begin to give up hope. But that's when our prayer partners come alongside of us and they encourage us, don't they? In a sense, they kind of take an arm, you know, and they kind of lift our arm up again to God. I think it's so important that we understand how there is strength in numbers, which is why we are commanded in the scriptures, Hebrews 10.25, not to forsake the fellowship of the saints. Satan knows there is strength in numbers. Therefore, he knows if he's going to defeat you, the best way to do it is to discourage you and peel you away from the body to isolate yourself. Because when he gets you to isolate yourself, then he can really defeat you. If you stay connected to the body, and you share with other uh, strong believers now, people you can trust, 
uh, how you are needing them to come alongside you and pray with you and pray for you. I'll tell you what, there is victory when we come together and we are, you know, are accountable to each other. Now look, if you gave this story a quick glance and I asked you, where was the battle taking place? Most people would say, well, down in the valley with Joshua and the children of Israel fighting the Amalekites. But you'd be wrong. Because a person who is really connected to the Spirit knows that the battle was actually taking place not in the valley. It was taking place on top of the hill with Moses, Aaron, and her in intercessory prayer. That's what that represented. They were a, a model of intercessory prayer. That's where the real battle was being fought. You know, the famous prayer warrior, S.D. Gordon, used to say, prayer is striking the winning blow. Service is simply gathering up the spoil. The real battle is in prayer. That's where the real battle is won. Service, and I'm not minimizing the importance of service. I'm just lifting up the importance of prayer over service. Elevate prayer even though service is very important, right? I mean, Joshua and the children of Israel had to physically fight with the Amalekites. Just like we can't spend all our time in prayer, we have to go out into the world and actually engage the culture. But here's the thing. If we're not praying, forget about engaging the culture because you are spinning your wheels. You will not be victorious. I remember um, Dave Wilk Wilkerson, who used to pastor uh, Times Square Church in New York. Uh, Dave and his wife were killed a few years ago in a car accident, and they're with the Lord now. But, uh, you know, he wrote the book, uh, The Cross and the Switchblade, fantastic book. I read it years ago about how God led him to begin a ministry to the gang gangbangers in New York. And what God did was amazing, how he saved so many of these kids. But in that book, or in a later uh, uh, article I was reading by him, he uh, said, I, I have people come to me all the time, want to be part of this ministry getting out in the streets of New York and, and, and witnessing to the lost and being used in ministry. First thing I asked them is, how's your prayer life? How long are you praying every day? Oh, I don't know, about 20 minutes. 20 minutes? He said, I will not let you go out into the streets of New York where there is gangs and drugs and violence on 20 minutes of prayer a day. If you aren't praying at least two hours a day, you are, you are not equipped to go out in, into that kind of ministry. Wow, talk about being convicted. Here's a man who was absolutely serious about prayer because he saw it firsthand. And he knew if the saints aren't praying, the battle isn't getting won. Prayer is not what we add to our service. Prayer is the main service. And then everything else after that falls after prayer. But as important as prayer is in victory over the enemy, by itself, it still isn't enough. It has to be coupled with the Word of God. I mean, if we're going to be victorious over the flesh, it has to be the Word of God and prayer. In verse 13 of Exodus 17, notice what we read. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with what? The edge of the sword. And I believe spiritually that was a reference to the sword of the Spirit of the Word of God. Hebrews 4 verse 12 for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. The word of God has power to keep us from sin. 1 John 2, verse 14, John says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Without the word of God abiding in us, we will not overcome the wicked one. Remember now, three times Satan came against Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him. And all three times Jesus defeated him by saying, it is written, and then quoted scripture. Victory in the Christian life over the flesh, the world, and the devil will only be won through prayer and the word of God. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. Classic passage on spiritual warfare. Paul said, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We're in a war, but it's not a physical war. For the weapons, plural now, plural, of our warfare are not carnal, they're not physical, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of demonic strongholds is the idea. The weapons, plural, of our warfare. He doesn't tell us what they are, can you guess? It's the word of God in prayer. We need both to be strong against the devil, to have victory. Victor over the flesh. Someday our struggle with the flesh is going to be over. Even as God promised Israel, they wouldn't have to fight with Amalek forever. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. There's coming a day when God says, I am completely going to wipe out any remembrance of, of Amalek. Someday, guys, when the rapture happens... God is going to finally wipe out everything about the flesh we've ever known. We are going to be delivered from this body of flesh. We are going to be glorified, okay? We, we will finally be freed from our war with the flesh forever. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, when he comes first at the rapture, we shall be like him. We shall be glorified, for we shall see him as he is. And of course, you can read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 53. Paul says, when the trumpet sounds at the rapture, this corruption, this body of flesh, will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. I'm going to be delivered from this body of flesh and the fallen nature and all the struggles I've had with the flesh, some people with the alcohol or the drugs, or the pornography, or something else, it can be all gone, all done. And we will have complete, glorious victory, freedom from the flesh from that moment on. Until that day, we will always have war with the flesh. Back to Exodus 17, verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God is saying to us that we are to keep fighting the flesh no matter how tired we get. And above all, we are never to make a treaty with it. Never to make a treaty with it. The Lord has only one command when it comes to our flesh to utterly destroy it. Remember that God gave to Saul the command to utterly wipe out the Amalekites, right? He didn't do it, did he? He kept Agag, the king, alive and maybe some others. So he didn't utterly wipe out the Amalekites. 
And guess what? You remember what happened to Saul? He was eventually killed by an Amalekite. What's the lesson? Very simply, it's this. If you don't keep fighting against your flesh, I, I, I heard a, a pastor one time uh, was talking to a young guy in his church, and the young guy was battling homosexuality. And he said, you know, I'm just so tired of fighting with it, I'm just going to give into it. And the pastor was horrified. He said, you never give in to your flesh. You never surrender to it. You keep fighting it. Oh, but I'm tired. Then you pray for, to God to give you fresh strength every day. But you never quit. You never give up. And you never make a treaty with the flesh. What do I mean? Well, I've conquered most of it. There's a couple little areas. Nobody's perfect. You know, but if you make a treaty with your flesh, I guarantee you, you will allow the enemy to, to maintain a beachhead in your life from which you will then move out and reconquer territory that you had once conquered through the Spirit for the glory of God. That's what we have to, you know, and God says, look, if you don't drive the, the uh, Canaanites now, the, the, the whole land of Canaan, if you don't drive the enemy out completely, I'm not going to do it. I'll leave them there. And they will be thorns in your side and constant stumbling block. If you don't fight the flesh and drive it from your life completely, and every day it's a battle. Just when you think you've got it driven out, it starts seeping back. You've got to keep fighting it, right? But uh, we never make a treaty with the flesh because if we don't utterly wipe out the flesh, the flesh will wipe us out. How many pastors who had victory in their lives but didn't get one area nailed down, didn't have total victory with the pornography, we'll say. They kept feeding that, and I've seen pastors like this. And they kept, you know, kind of watching the pornography, which kept that part of their sin nature really alive. And eventually, they wound up then having affairs, and today they're not even in ministry. Again, guys, if we don't constantly fight the flesh to maintain dominance over the flesh, the flesh will rush in and it will capture us again and bring us, it'll wipe us out. We don't wipe it out. So God will never have, allow us make, to make peace with the flesh. He will have us war against the flesh until the day he utterly blots the flesh out, which is when the rapture happens. Let me just say this. In James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, James said, Therefore submit to God, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice what James says will give us victory. He says, look, we don't gain victory over the flesh through deliverance. There are deliverance ministries. And what they do is they will pray that you're, you know, you've got, <laughs> you've got this craving uh, for chocolate, okay? I mean, you, chocolate is just your downfall. You, you can't have victory over this craving. So what do they do? They pray over you to be delivered from the demon of chocolate. No. You're not going to be delivered from your flesh until Jesus does it at the rapture. James doesn't say that. He says what? Resist the devil. He doesn't say rebuke the devil and ask God to deliver you from the demon of cigarettes or chocolate cake or whatever it is. He says, resist the devil. We don't, we don't have victory by, by deliverance or by therapy. I mean, Christian therapy is real big 
Okay, but I'm telling you, the way to have victory is very simple. We resist, deny, crucify the flesh by faith in the promises of God. It's a walk of faith every day, just like when they enter the promised land. Walk of faith. But I want you to turn to one last scripture, Deuteronomy 25. And this is so basic, but I don't want you to miss it. In Deuteronomy 25, God is recounting now how Amalek came out against the children of Israel as soon as they came out of Egypt, pretty much. This is in preparation for them entering into the promised land now after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Verse 17, Deuteronomy 25, God said, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked where? Your rear ranks and all the stragglers at your rear, the end of the line when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Guys, the lesson is clear. If we're not following Christ closely, if we're kind of tagging along at the end of the line, the farther you are from Jesus, the more the flesh is going to be able to defeat you. The closer we, we are to Jesus, the safer and stronger we're going to be. Not like Peter who followed at a distance and wound up denying the Lord three times. So very simple principles, but very basic. Just stay close to Jesus. Stay connected to him. Just keep following him. And don't get too far. Don't, you know, I'm tired though. I'm weary. Well, the children of Israel got tired and weary. Many of them fell back in the back of the line. That's where the devil picked them off. I mean, wait on the Lord. He shall renew your strength, right? You shall mount up with wings as eagles. You shall walk and not run, walk and not grow weary. You shall run and not faint. Wait on the Lord. Spend time in his presence. Draw from him every day, his strength. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've placed in your word so many principles and things for us to glean that we could apply to our lives today. Uh, these today, Lord, have been very basic but very important that we need to feed, uh, Lord, on your word uh, daily. Drink from the life giving waters of your word, that we maintain a close walk with you. You want to flow through us. You're in us. But Lord, you want your spirit to flow through us, to touch a dying and thirsty world around us for Christ. So Father, give us grace. These are difficult days. Many are weary in your kingdom. Many of your children are so weary that they've dropped out of the race. Father, renew our strength. Refresh us with a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.